morning again. I'm Taylor Entz, if you don't know me, and if you do, as I always say when I say that stupid line. Um, I'm the pastor here at Sojourn Galleria, and it's just a pleasure to be here with you this morning. I was saying earlier that it's just what better way to ring in the new year um, on the first day of 2017 than to worship God together. It's just such a privilege. I hope you had a good Christmas. Uh, we kind of sent folks to, to Heights and Montrose and elsewhere with your families if there was an elsewhere. So I hope uh, I've missed y'all, and but it was a good break too. Although my family got my entire family got kind of sick, like violently so, over the holidays. I don't know if anybody else can shout amen to that. Hope, hopefully not. I see a hand. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. But uh, missed y'all, and it's good to be back with with God's people. Well, the sermon this morning is going to be shorter, a little bit. You hear me say that a lot. I'm always trying to get to 30. I'm always edging over 30. We'll get there eventually. But it's really going to be under 30 this morning because of these guys. It's, uh, it's Family Worship Sunday, because we just, we just didn't have, I think January 1st, we didn't have the volunteers we needed um, for children's. And, you know, we do put a premium on family worship. We, that's why we only provide really care through about age six. And uh, eventually, we want Sunday school for all ages. We'll get there, hopefully, God willing. But um, after that, we really want, like Seth, next year, we want to start bringing him after his seventh birthday in June into the gathering with us to worship. Uh, we really value that. And so this is sort of a test case. But Susanna, man, she's a little R2-D2 up here, you know. So, um, And all that to say, too, because we value family worship and because Jesus loves kids and because we love kids, um, never feel bad. But especially this morning, like, man, those, those little children, their voices are, are praise to God. And I love hearing them. I mean, if someone's screaming, fine, you can take them out. It's up to you. But don't, don't be like, ah! Um, I remember my friend, the first Sunday he brought his little two-week-old to church, holding her like a little football, and she went, beep, and just a t- first kid, tiny peep, and he just, poof, just bolted out the door. I, I, I remember feeling like that as a first-time parent, but don't worry. Okay, so we're in Matthew 3 this morning. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, um, and uh, let me start in. So it's really, it's really about good news and bad news, but bad news first. So, so imagine this. Um, someone walks up to you and says to you, you're free. Okay, that has the impact of like a soft towel at best, and it's weird, because it's not good news, and there's no context for it. Um, my point is, you need the bad news first for the good news to be good news, so let's, let's retry that. Okay, you walk into a court, you're tried, and the verdict is, gavel goes down, life sentence, no hope of parole, but at the end of it, to make matters worse, at the end of your life sentence, after you've suffered your entire life, and lost your whole life in jail, you're going to be executed by lethal injection. Now the good news. You're free. Just kidding. All that's been wiped away. You're free. The judge says, you don't know how, but you've been exonerated. Your debt's been canceled. Uh, your debt to society's been cleared. All of a sudden, the same news, you're free, becomes, it goes from being irrelevant and not good news with the impact of a soft towel to a hammer stroke of great news. Here's was, here was my scenario first, and now I'm free. I was going to spend my entire life in jail, incarcerated, and then I was going to die by lethal injection. That was my sentence. It's what I deserve. But I've been completely cleared. Great news. This is an oversimplification, but if you can think of the Old Testament in one way, think of it as bad news. Like I said, oversimplification. It's not just bad news. But think of the Old Testament as bad news, and then think of the New Testament as good news. Um, 
In this way, the Old Testament becomes a preparatorio evangelica, or a preparation for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus Christ, of the coming Messiah. And really, the only good news in the Old Testament is the, are the strands woven through about the coming Messiah. Everything else is bad news. Everything else as bad news is preparing us for, hey, you're free. You've been exonerated. The king is coming. This helps explain John's really short, like super short, way shorter than my sermon this morning, sermon, where he says, repent. Think of that word, repent, as the Old Testament. Then he says, for the kingdom of heaven is coming at any moment. New Testament, Jesus, he's finally here. Um, The point is, again, the kingdom of heaven is good news, but bad news first. Or let me say it slightly differently. The kingdom of heaven is good news, but only if it's bad news first. If you don't hear the bad news first, if you don't hear the repent, if you don't hear the John the Baptist coming and saying the fire is coming, repent of the way that you've been living, of your sins, and even of the good things you've been trying to do to measure up to God. If we don't hear that and let it sink in first and really aren't terrified by that, then the news of the coming Messiah isn't going to be good news at all. So Matthew, uh, he starts off this chapter, and we've, in, you know, in Advent, and now into Advent, and Epiphany, uh, sorry, sorry, Advent, Christmas tide rather, which I guess we're in the middle of now, sort of for the end of, and then Epiphany, um, we're going to be preaching through the book of Matthew. We'll take a break for the Lenten season for six weeks in Lamentations, which is maybe the best book you could preach during Lent, so I'm excited about that, a time of repentance. And then we'll finish Matthew and his passion in the end of the book um, during Eastertide, during Passion Week and Eastertide. So that, that's where we are in the trajectory. We've looked at the first couple chapters of Matthew, and we've looked at just Christ's coming, his birth. And now in verse 1 of chapter 3, Matthew says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And it involves John the Baptist, and it involves Jesus. These are the two characters we see in Matthew 3. When he says, in those days, he goes straight from chapter 2, Straight from Jesus as baby in his birth, through a sinful woman, as a sinless man, without an earthly father, with God as his father, to be our savior, as a man, but as God, to in those days. So in those days encompasses 30 years. Um, that, so 30 years fast forward, now Jesus is a grown man. He's about to start his ministry. That's where we are. And that's a simple point. But it's also, if we could take a step back, just an opportunity to say that Matthew and all the other gospel writers, they're selective. This is not, the gospels are not a bio, an ancient biography of the life of a man called Jesus. They're very selective. They're propaganda with a point. They're true propaganda, but they have a point. And the point is, as we've been talking about thus far, this Messiah has come for one reason, to live for us in our place to die for us in our place and to rise to a new type of life for us in our place. So he's selective here. He doesn't give us the whole bit. Uh, But he says, in those days, okay? Now let's dive into the text with a few minutes that we have left. So the kingdom of heaven is good news, but it's really bad news first. And this helps us understand John's sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want to just do three short points this morning. First, who is John the Baptist? Secondly, who is Jesus? And then thirdly, what is his baptism? What does Jesus' baptism mean? John baptizes Jesus. What does that mean? So who's John the Baptist? Who's Jesus? And then what does Jesus' baptism mean? 
So who is John the Baptist first? Um, he is not John the beloved apostle who wrote the fourth gospel. That's kind of confusing. Two Johns, both major characters in the Gospels. So he's not one of the 12 disciples, this John the Baptist. This John the Baptist is, is Jesus' cousin. He's slightly older than Jesus, just by a few months. They were basically born at the same time. And his birth is spoke, spoken of in detail in Luke's Gospel, if you want to read about it. Um, his whole purpose, John the Baptist's entire purpose in his ministry and really in his life was to prepare the way for the Messiah, as we see here in this text. John was a, a human snowplow. Jesus came behind him. John prepares the way for Jesus. Now, for those of you from up north, that registers. For us, it's like, what? You know, down here, if we've never lived in a, in a frozen uh, state. So, okay, he's a police escort. He's a snowplow. For those of you that have been up north, he's, a, he's, also, he's like a police. John's like a, a human police escort. And behind him is the king, the dignitary, Jesus is coming, and John's just preparing his way. And if you look at verse 3, at the end of verse 3, it says, make his path straight. So prepare the way of the Lord. John is this voice crying in the wilderness. What's he crying? Prepare the way of the Lord. He's preparing as a snowplow, as a police escort. He's preparing Jesus' way, the arrival of Messiah. And what is he saying? He's saying, make his path straight. This was a fairly, this would have registered to the, those in the ancient Near East. When a king would um, visit the outlying provinces, the provinces around the capital city in his, in his, within his rule, when he would have visited the outlying towns, uh, it was a big deal. Most people had never, ever seen the king before. Not, I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm just talking about the ruler in the ancient Near East. Even in the Far East, this was, this was fairly common, I understand. I don't know about Africa. I don't know about Mesoamerica. But in, in, um, in the east, when a king would visit his country, it was a big deal. And literally, they would, there would be crews that would prepare his way. And if you look at the text this is taken from in Isaiah 40, it's a prophecy in Isaiah 40, 700 years before this, verse 3. The next verse, verse 4, says, uh, make the valleys, bring them up, make them level, and, and, make, and, and uh, make them like plains and bring down the mountains. Make everything smooth, make all the bends straight, and literally crews would cut through mountains, they would fill valleys, they would make the passage of the king easy so that he could come and visit his people, and it was a huge deal. And that's what John's saying. He's saying, I am the one that's charged with preparing the way and with also proclaiming, prepare the way for the king. He's coming. So, how do we best prepare for the king's arrival? Well, John says it in a word. How do we best prepare for the king's arrival, for the arrival of Jesus Christ? We best prepare for his arrival by repenting. It's John's one-word sermon. Repent. It's what he calls us to. It's what he's calling the people of this time to. The best way that we can prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ is to repent. Um, to look at that a bit more, let's look at the parallel between John and Elijah, whom John is, he's, he's prophesied in Malachi as being Elijah, come again, the, the ancient prophet of the Old Testament, who sort of embodies all of the prophecy and all of the prophets of the Old Covenant. He dresses just like him. First of all, he's, he dresses in camel's hair. He lives out in the wilds just like Elijah did. He eats locusts and honey. Okay, so only one person resembled this sort of appearance 
and this kind of lifestyle in the Old Testament, it was, it was Elijah. Um, and again, what is his message? Repent, for the king is coming. That's another, this is another way, his message, not just his appearance, is another way that John the Baptist resembles Elijah. Elijah, um, he appears out of nowhere in Kings. He has no, there's no genealogy, there's no record. He just, first verse, first Kings 17, he pops onto the scene and he starts telling off Ahab, the wickedest king of Israel, just to his face, something you did not do. Incredibly bold. Just like John ends up telling off Herod, doesn't he? And, and pays for his life, pays, with it for, pays for it with his life. Um, but Elijah is that way. And so in his message, and then even in his appearing, he just comes out of nowhere. Just like here in Matthew, unlike Luke, Matthew just has John pop up out of nowhere. There's no mention of him previously. And so that's another way in which John the Baptist resembles Elijah and reminds us this is Elijah to come. This is the one that has been prophesied in Malachi 500 years ago or so, that he's going he's gonna to foretell and pave the way for the king who's going to come and save us all. But if you look back at Elijah's time, Elijah came at a time when Israel was incredibly wicked. Uh, she was at a low point in her history, and her king was leading the way, super idolatrous. The whole people, basically, had gone over to worshiping false gods, idolatry in mass. And Matthew is making a subtle point here. He's saying the similar darkness, even though, even though now the people of Israel think that they are worshiping God, Truly, the Pharisees are in power. They are punctiliously obeying the law. The idols have been swept away. It looks on the outside, ostensibly, like things have changed a lot. But Matthew's saying, no, the same kind of darkness is here. And it's a religious darkness. And we'll see in Matthew as we go through the book that Jesus is just, he rails his, his enemy number one, his public enemy number one, to use an 80s reference, is the, is the Pharisees. Not because he hates them, but because he loves them, and they are leading themselves astray and leading other people astray by saying it's the law that saves us. It's Moses that saves us, without seeing that it's the law that's supposed to make us desperate for a Savior who keeps the law for us and who dies in our place. Because we can never, no matter how much law we keep, we can never take away sin by our obedience. It has to be paid for. And so um, Matthew is saying a similar darkness inhabits this land. You must repent. It's the only way and the best way to prepare for the king's coming. You know, um, when you hear repent as a Christian, you might think, okay, great, I got that. If you're a non-Christian, you haven't come to a place yet where you bow the knee to, to Jesus as Lord and Savior, this is a word for you, of course. Like, John is calling us, Jesus is calling us. The first thing to do is to say, I am a sinner. I need you, Savior, save me. That's repentance. And repentance is also turning from whatever you are looking to. All the, maybe there are bad things, but usually there are good things that we make ultimate things that you're clinging to, to save you, to find hope in, that you're giving your heart to, that you're giving yourself to. These are the idols that we constantly, like John Calvin says, we constantly fabricate. We constantly create in our hearts idols. Other things that are not God, that are good things that we look to to, to save us, to satisfy us, to fulfill us, to give us meaning. Um, you know, even as Christians, we do that. Even as new creations in Christ, repentance isn't a one-time thing through which we come to Christ. It, it is the decisive thing, but also it's a thing that, as Christians, John is calling us to constantly. You know, Martin Luther said um, in his 95 Theses that 500 years ago, okay, this is the first day that I can say this, okay, in 1517, so exactly 500 years ago, Martin Luther, the reformer, nailed uh, a 95 Theses 
to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And it helped inflame a reformation in the church that was already sort of bubbling, percolating. And he said in his first, uh, in his first thesis, he said, the Christian life is one of continual repentance. Not looking at it as a bad thing, but looking at it as the portal to life. What is it, uh, Bono, U2 uh, lead singer, who said something like, you ask me to enter. He's talking about entering into life with God, entering into the, the place where God resides, entering into a relationship with God. You ask me to enter, but then you make me crawl. Is that what he says? Then you make me kneel. Then you make me crawl. Okay, and that's exactly what God calls us to do. You can't do it. I've sent my son to do it in your place. I'm helpless, Lord. I'm feckless. I'm helpless, I have no resources. I bring nothing to the table but my own sin and helplessness. You have come to save me. This is the beginning of life with God. But it's also, as Christians, something that every morning, every night, throughout the day, Lord, I'm a sinner. Save me. First John, if we say that we have no sin, we're liars. But if we do say that we have sin and we've trusted in Christ, we know that we have an advocate before God the Father. A life of continually saying, God, make me holy. And there's such a word of hope here because... Um, repentance points to not just washing ourselves up and, and getting clean ourselves or like getting a little better, but he says, look, God is fire. This Messiah that's coming, this king, he's fire. And what he does is he bur- if you're wood or hay or something insubstantial, which we're all born as on the inside, sinful, we're hollowed out by our sin. If that's who you are, then when the fire comes, you're just going to burn up. The coming of the king is really bad news. Unless Um, what John is saying is like, look, he is going to, it's bad news if you're wood or hay, but if you're something else completely, if you're a precious metal, gold, silver, something else like that, fire isn't bad. Fire is good. The fire of repentance, it actually makes you better. It purifies gold. It removes the impurities. And so what the implicit word there is that the Messiah is coming not just to make the wood a little, not just to like whittle the wood into something pretty, but to take wood and to become wood for us and to be burned up in our place and to give us the gold that he is and to make us something qualitatively different on the inside. Something that when the fire comes and I repent and I look to Jesus as my Lord and Savior, he changes me on the inside from wood and hay and is burned up in my place and takes my place into gold, into silver, into something substantial. So that all of a sudden through repentance and looking to Jesus as Messiah, his coming, the king's coming, can be very, very good news. Not just a one-time repentance, but a continual, a continual thing. Okay, guys, I'm, that was the longest point, and I'm closing down here. Quickly, who is Jesus? In a word, if you look at John 3, verse, Matthew 3, excuse me, verse 3, again, it's a prophecy, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So we've looked at who John is. And his message. Now, who is Jesus? Briefly, briefly. Who is Jesus? This passage, like I said, comes from Isaiah chapter 40, the very beginning. And if you know anything about Isaiah, that is the exact transition point in one of the longest prophets, 66 books in Isaiah. The first 39 chapters are all bad news. Israel, you've sinned. You are in big trouble. You're going to pay for your sin. There's going to be judgment. Judgment, 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 because God is just and sin be paid for. Chapter 40, everything turns. The first two words in, the, in chapter 40 are comfort, 
comfort my people Israel. And then this. Messiah is coming and he's going to make everything better. He's going to change your judgment to good news, to mercy, and to comfort. So there's this amazing word that Matthew takes from in Isaiah of, yes, the fire's coming, but it's actually really, really good news. But it's only good news if repentance happens. If we bow the knee and say, I can't do it, you've come to do it for me, king. And also, who is Jesus? If you look at this prophecy from Isaiah, it says, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. It's talk- who's, who's it talking about? Prepare the way of the Lord. Who, who is that? Call out to me. Give me some callback. I know we're like super white in here, but give me, give me some callback. Okay, prepare the way of the Lord. Who's the Lord in this context? Messiah, Jesus, clearly. If you look back at the context this was lifted from 700 years previous in Isaiah, the Lord is in all capitals in a lot of our translations, and what that means is in the Hebrew, the word is prepare the way of Yahweh. That was the unutterable name. Jews won't even say it to this day. When they see Yahweh in the Hebrew, they read Adonai instead. They won't even say it. It's the name I am, the name of the one true God, the covenant God, the creator, the sustainer, the eternal one. No beginning, no end. What is John saying? What is Matthew saying, rather? Matthew is saying that creator, in ways that I've just told you in Matthew's, Matthew 1 and 2, has come to be with us as a man. He is the creator God. He is the one true God. Prepare the way for him. So that's Jesus. And finally, who is John? Who is Jesus? Finally, what does his baptism mean? If you look at verse 14 and following, what does John say when Jesus comes to him? And he says, baptize me. As John's baptizing people that are coming out, and he's saying, repent, prepare the way, and people are getting baptized, being cleansed, in a sense, symbolically, for their sins, getting prepared for the coming of this king. Jesus comes, to John's surprise. And what does John say? He says, yeah, absolutely, come on for a dunk in the Jordan River. No, he doesn't say that. He pushes him back and says, you can't, you're coming for me to baptize you? No, I need baptism by you. And why does John say that? Because everyone knew, John knew, Jesus knew, all the people knew, you came for baptism if you were a sinner. And you needed, symbolically, to show that you needed to be cleansed from sin by God himself and to come to new life, okay? And John is saying, you are the Messiah. You are sinless. You don't need it. I need it from you. And what what does Jesus say? Basically, he says, you're right, but but permit it now. Permit it now for the filling of all righteousness, okay? So if he's saying, you're right, just, just allow it. He doesn't say, look, no, you're wrong, John. I'm a sinner. I need it just like anyone else. He does not say that. He says, permit it. Allow it for now for the fulfilling of all righteousness. But implicit in that, John knows it, Jesus knows it, Matthew's already sort of shown us, this sinless Savior, born of a virgin, God himself come to us. He's sinless. He doesn't need it. So he doesn't need righteousness. He doesn't need to be filled with righteousness. Who is he talking about? Who is he being baptized for? He's being baptized for us. Call back. Love it. Um, That is what Matthew is trying to get across. That's what Jesus is showing us, and Matthew is showing us, right before Jesus' public ministry starts, in a very public way. And what is the sort of exclamation point on the fact that Jesus is not being baptized for his own sins? He's not going to be thrust into the wilderness to be tempted for himself. 
He's not going to live a life of perfect obedience for himself. He's not going to die a death on the cross for himself. He's not going to rise from the dead for himself. How do we know this? We know it in a thousand ways, but one, we know it here by what I said, but also God, as he comes up out of the water, the Father literally in an audible voice says, this is my beloved, I love him so much, son, in whom what? I am well pleased. Not, and he's got some stuff wrong with him and he needed that baptism. No, I'm so pleased with him, he's perfect. In other words, again, he was not baptized for himself. He was baptized for you. You need cleansing from sin. He is taking your place. He's your representative. He's your substitute. And he's about to be thrust out to be tested and tempted, but not for him, for you. And Israel failed in the wilderness. She was tempted and she failed. Adam was tempted and he failed. But Jesus is going to succeed where Adam failed, where Israel failed, where we fail. He is going to succeed. He, as we read through the pages of Matthew, I want you to see Jesus, he is taking your place. He has come to save you, not just in his death. Get this, and then I'm closing, okay? He has come to save you, not just in his death. He has come to save you in his life. In everything that he does, in every act of obedience to the Father, your salvation hung in the balance. If he had, if he had disobeyed in deed, word, or thought from the heart at all, not seeking fully to love God with all of his heart, mind, and strength, we would have been lost. But he didn't. And the fact that God, at the end of this book, and 2,000 years ago, accepted his payment on the cross, proof of which is that he, rose him, he raised him from the dead, he was saying his whole life was a life of perfect obedience in your place. Friends, we don't just need to repent. We don't just need to repent of the bad things that we do, and those are many daily. We do need to repent from those. We do need to turn from those and turn to the living God and say, you are my heart's desire. You came for me. Fulfill me. Help me look to you and you alone. But we also need to repent from our good works, from the things that we try to do to measure up. Because Matthew is telling us this Messiah has come to make us completely new and to not only die in our place, but to live in our place. Let our good works be a an upwelling of gratitude and thankfulness for what's already been done for us and fully delivered in total. Your salvation is complete in Christ. What did he say on the cross? Last words. It is is finished, not comma, but Bubba Vandiver needs to do a little more once he comes along in 2,000 years. Didn't say that. Didn't say that. And thank God he didn't. Calvin, Jesus has achieved total righteousness for us by the whole course of his obedience. Thus, in his very baptism also, he asserted that he fulfilled a part of the righteousness in obediently carrying out his father's commandments. In short, from the time when he took the form of a servant, he began to pay the price of liberation in order to redeem us. Herman Bavink, a Dutch scholar. It is totally contrary to scripture, therefore, to restrict the satisfactory or atoning work of Christ to his suffering. His entire life was a self-offering as head in the place of his own, his own being us. I began by telling you a story about a, a man who got the death sentence followed by good news, but you're free. You've been exonerated. Your debt's been cleared. But what I didn't say is what the judge continued to say, which is you've been exonerated and your debt's been cleared because someone else stepped in your place, took your life sentence, 
lived it out, and died a death of lethal, lethal injection for you. Someone had to pay. That's why you're clear. That's what Jesus did for us. His whole life, his whole death. And that's what we're about to jump into. This is the formal beginning of his ministry. It's going to be a beautiful journey. I can't wait to take it. The, the wilderness temptations next week, one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. So rich. So rich. So I can't wait to take this journey with you guys. We're already on the way. We aren't magically saved from being burned up when the fire comes. Someone had to be burned up in our place. Closing story. I told it before, but the best stories are told more than once. The pioneers, true, uh, the American pioneers would travel west to, uh, to colonize, to live in, uh, you know, the, the middle part of the country and, of course, eventually out to California and, and Oregon, Oregon country. Um, and as they, as they would travel west, they would hit the, the Great Plains, right, the middle of our country, the breadbasket, the Great Plains. I mean, see, some of you have seen them. I never have, okay, so I have to use my imagination, but sea of, seas of grass, high grass, so far that it's like you're looking out on the ocean and it, all you can see is water, but all you can see is just high grass everywhere. And some people say it it's actually creates vertigo. It, huge sky, flat horizon, grass as far as the eye can see. And the worst thing, this became fairly common, the worst thing that a pioneer would look for and would sometimes see was a flash of light in the distance, a fire. Because when the fire came, there was nowhere for you to go. You were in a sea of high grass, flammable. Fire eats it up, loves it, it's fuel. And man, these fires with the wind, the prairie winds would just go faster than a man can run, faster than a coach can take you, faster than a horse can go, and would just burn up everything in their path. Bad, bad, bad news. But what the pioneers figured out is the only safe place, there's nowhere to go, but there is one solution. The only safe place to be was you would, you would burn out some grass. You would burn out some grass and you would get in the middle of that burn, right in the middle of the burn spot, and the fire would just go around you. And you would be saved, because there was nothing left for the fire to consume. You were standing in the burn spot. Friends, I want you to understand that if you are in Christ, first of all, the fire's coming. And if you are trying to fight it, or run from it, or stand up to it by yourself, you will be burned up. That's what John is saying. That's what Malachi is saying. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what the Old Testament is saying. The only safe place is in the burn spot. In the burn spot, in the place where Christ was consumed for you, in your place, you are safe. In your life, in your death. Let's live from that place of repentance and gratitude. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for sending your son to be our burn spot sending your son to be, to live a life of full obedience from the heart that we owe to you but have flagrantly violated and to be burned up for us as a payment for not his sins but for ours. We love you, Jesus. Help us to li live lives of continual repentance, not in glum sullenness but in joy. In Jesus' name, amen.